This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're pumped. We're pumped to be back with you. I'm caffeinated. Look at the size of this Dunkin' Donuts. I know. Look at this. None of you can see this. None of you can see that, but it's a giant cub she just presented. I've got a regular size (laughs) mug, and then I have a giant Yeti tumbler full of coffee. We are on one today. <laughs> I know. You know, like when people go to the construction site and they bring this like giant Stanley thing with a handle. This is what. Yep. This is my job where I bring my my giant thermos. So and just just to help because I know you guys can't see any of this. Millie's is like I think three hands tall. Like you know, usually <laughs> you you measure uh, alcohol by fingers. Millie's is three hands. <laughs> it truly. <laughs> this is fifteen fingers tall. <laughs> So and I went on the dunk. The dunk. Uh, they have extra. They have extra large at the dunk, and uh, I usually don't dig into an extra large. Mm. But today I was like, "Fuck it." Is it as big as a Starbucks Trenta? Have you ever had a Trenta cup before? I have had a Trenta cup before. I've yeah. I've seen the Trenta cup before. Yeah. This is probably as big as the Trenta. How many ounces is that? I think it feels like forty. If too not many. More. Yeah. Too ma- 40, 40 ounces of freedom. It's too many ounces. <laughs> it's too many fucking ounces for any human body to consume in one sitting. Not a sublime reference within <laughs> the first three minutes. <laughs> Which is wild because I don't like sublime. And yes, go ahead. Send me your fucking reviews. Send me your fucking emails. I don't like sublime. And I know the whole story and I don't care. I don't like them. If you come at us defending sublime in a really harsh way, you, I will say turn this off. Like, just turn off our podcast. <laughs> I will say that Millie will get on a plane and fight you in person. <laughs> like, she will turn it into, like, a, a debate event. <laughs> they were one of these bands where I realized that Southern California stands certain bands in the hardest fucking way possible. When I when I hear the opening chords to Santeria, I just want to throw a table against a wall. I'm so mad. I hate that song so much. Well, and like, okay, this is so fucking nerdy. I'm just going to say it. Like, when I was in high school, Sublime came out, and everybody was really like, there was a a time where there were all these, like, ska bands coming out on, like, Mm. commercial radio, and everybody was like, I love the ska band Sublime. And I was in their face going, they're not a ska band. Okay, neither is no doubt. Like, I, I had a very, very pure vision of what actual ska music was. And this, I just remember getting into so many fights about Sublime and being like, <laughs> ah! 
Yeah, so they have reggae influences, but they're not a ska band, okay? Like, they're a fucking fuck mess. They're a fucking mess is what they are. Well, and I actually don't... I know, like, a couple songs. Did I tell you this? Did, I, we're going on a tangent now, but, but so be it, right? That's um, the show. Who cares? That's, it, that's our show. Again, you don't want a tangent, go listen to somebody else. Yeah, just turn it off. <laughs> just turn it off. But, like, so... I don't know if I told you this. Maybe I told you this, like, when we were talking on the phone the other night, but, like... My, the radio station, the big commercial alternative radio station from my high school years is back for some reason. <laughs> like, it, they were off the air for, like, 20 years, and then I guess they decided to start it back up again. And they've gotten, like, all of the old DJs to come back. Which, which is, is wild. So, <laughs> yes, because presumably they have retired some of them feel like they might be dead. I mean, they were old <laughs> in 1993. You know what I, I mean? That, like, they're on the air, but I feel like they're dead. Well, it's like, they're probably in their 50s and 93. They gotta be dead by now. Come on. It's been like, what, 40? Is that 40 years? 40 <laughs> years to the day? Like, 30, 30 years. <laughs> oh, it's 30 years. Okay. Cut that. <laughs> Don't cut that. Oh, Leave I know, that math don't. in. Leave like, that math in. <laughs> show, I'm, I'll show my work. I don't care. I got zero pride when it comes to this <laughs> podcast. But um, so, oh, they, so now it's like the okay. So part of the part of the thing that's weird about it is that a the all the old DJs are back, and I'm like, how did you get them to quit their jobs or come out of retirement to work at this radio station again? But right. then also, they're not on the actual number on the dial that they were. So they were they're called 99X, right? 99.7 on the on the radio dial, but they apparently that's another radio station so they had to get another number. So now they're at like 100.5, but they're still calling themselves 99X and I'm like this is so weird. Everything about this is so fucking weird. You said they're, they're that they're playing like old episodes and they're talking about like OJ and shit. Yes. So <laughs> like there's playing, no quality control at all. <laughs> they're playing they're playing actual morning shows from the 90s, okay? So, like, they're, it's just like a, I don't know, like, they're just playing them in full? I don't know. I haven't listened long enough to those sections. But there was, like, there's episodes where they're talking about current events from, like, the early 90s, and it's like OJ, the Menendez brothers. Mm -mm. Uh, I mean, it's just, like, so no. weird. So you're, like, tuning in a radio station, you hear people making a joke about, you know, fucking... I don't know, the Menendez brothers uh, getting out of jail or something. And I'm like, what in the world is going on anyway? What is happening? The point being is that they play a sublime, one sublime song literally every like 15, 20 minutes. And it's that song Wrong mm -hmm. Way. Oh my God. That's another one. I hear that <laughs> song and I get so mad that I could take an instant shit. Like yes. it's just everything in my body builds up and is like, what? Why? And I don't get that mad about any music. Like, I, there's nothing I can think of. Even new metal, which we discussed in our, <laughs> <laughs> in our Aaliyah episode. Even new metal doesn't make me instantly mad. Like, I can find some humor and some levity and some lightness in new metal. Yeah. I absolutely I cannot. But I, I appreciate <laughs> that you can. Some of, so, one of us has to stay positive about that. Right. Because we don't want to get a nope in our comments again. Um, Unless it's a five-star nope. Yeah, Surprise yeah, us. <laughs> but it's, 
the only thing I remember about Sublime, to be honest, was A, defending the fact that they were not a ska band, B, that they always played shirtless. The whole band was shirtless all the time. Right. <laughs> Like it, and like, trust me, I do like bands that were all shirtless. Like uh, 311, we oh, talked God. about this. I've loved 311. They didn't wear shirts for a long time. You're going to have a 311 hologram floating around your grave. <laughs> they don't have to be wearing shirts while that's happening. You're not about, you're not opposed to it. I should like Sublime theoretically because I like 311, but for some reason I just don't, I don't really fuck with Sublime, but that Wrong Way song, they play it constantly. And and then I just remember that the video wasn't like Debo from Friday in that video or something. <laughs> ah, I don't remember. <laughs> this is also the thing, like you have to put, when you really dislike something, you just know everything about it because you yes. always have to defend your dislike of it. So you're yeah. like, I can talk about the video. I can talk about how it's not Sky. I can talk about all this shit <laughs> because I know your fans are going to come at me and be like, but they're this, but they're that. Great. You enjoy it. Do not play it in my presence. I can't. It's the one band that I have a visceral response to. Dude, you are so right about having, having to be kind of armed yeah. to the hilt about stuff that you don't like because you do have to defend it. I All love that. Because a lot of people want to act like when they hate something, they're like, well, I don't know anything about that. I hate that show. I don't watch that show. And I'm actually like, no, you should be watching every single second of that show, taking fucking notes, and then coming up with like a very clear outline for why you don't like it. Defend I want it. Excel spreadsheets. I want... A podcast, like do a podcast about it. Do a whole. I want all the information you have about what you don't like. Well, listen, I heard that you there's something else that you don't like because I heard about it in a text. Oh yeah, night. you heard about it in a text and a phone call this week. I was going off on one <laughs> because I was so mad. This it ruined my whole day and then the whole next day. So. <laughs> Out of nowhere. I get these, like, little flights of fancy sometimes. And I really, I like a lot of musical theater, and I like a lot of musical movies. And I just wanted to watch Chicago. So I turn on Chicago, and I'm watching it. And then, of course, I'm like, makes me think of other, you know, musicals I haven't seen in a while or things I haven't seen in a while. So I pop on a chorus line. And a chorus line is something, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And it's one of those movies that I shouldn't have even watched when I was a kid, but I did. And I haven't seen it since. Mm. I still, it is like 35 years later. And I'm watching the end of a chorus line. And if you don't know, and if you've never seen it, you can look up the YouTube video. It's just, if you just want to see the ending, where they start with like five people on stage and they end with like a hundred people on stage. And they're all dancing in unison and like doing their thing, right? Right. And it's all done weirdly with like, mirrors or something but here's the thing i don't know how it's done because i went on a fucking internet deep dive <laughs> for about four hours at two o'clock in the morning and i'm like how does a chorus line choreography do that no one had a straight answer for all the <laughs> internet that we have it's like here's how to do a chorus line if you're in high school and i'm like i don't care tell me how they do the mirror trick at the end and i couldn't find it so i'm up half the night looking up the dumbest information and then it hit me and I'm like, Millie does this every fucking day. <laughs> Millie does this every fucking day for every movie that we do for this podcast. She's deep diving. How is your life not ruined by this? 
It's ruined. I talk about it all the time. Like, I, my life is fucking ruined. You know how many sleepless nights I've had since I started this stupid podcast with you? And the funny thing is, is that it's basically your fault. Because <laughs> my, my whole thing about your movies is that I watch that shit pretty late at night. And of course, you know, at a certain point, I just get like so caught up in what I'm watching that I'm like, well, now I got to get on the internet. And it's already like one o'clock in the morning when I right. start. I know. So. That is, I don't know how you fucking do it. It gave me a whole new <laughs> level of appreciation for you. Thank you. But it also made me wonder, what is wrong with you? Like, this is some <laughs> deep shit that is life-ruining on a regular basis. Listen, I, I've tried to interrogate this, <laughs> it, it, like, many times in my life because I've always been this way. I just want, I'm the, my personality is such that I have to know the information. Like, I just... Right. Have to. I'm fascinated by, like, I want to open up the back of the clock and f- look at what how it works. I just, yeah. Yes. And I do this with, like, every fucking thing. Like, I'm like, <laughs> everything. Like, I'm well, like. that's the thing. Like, I'm a completist. I want to know the information. Like, yeah. I want, I'm the person who, like, took apart a carburetor when I was in high school just because I'm like, how does a carburetor work? I don't know. Yeah. And I want to know. Yeah. So I'm with you on that. But. These late night deep dives have got to stop. It is ruining our lives. I know. Well, and I'm so glad that you finally experienced the the fever of it because it's like yes. once you start it, it is like you can't stop. Like you're like, well, now I'm fucking going into the Wikipedia links at the bottom, which is taking yep. you to all these other websites. Sometimes you're like on the Wayback Machine looking at websites from like, you know, the 90s. It's like yes. the Sublime era or whatever. And you're like, <laughs> What am I doing? Like, it's four o'clock in the morning and I'm reading an interview with an actor on Netscape Navigator right. or whatever. Exactly. Like, why am I looking at this 8-bit fucking DOS <laughs> website to try to figure out how they're getting all these people on stage on a fucking chorus line? And here's the thing. I watch the clip over and over again and I'm like, even rationally, it doesn't make sense when I watch it. Yeah. I should be able to figure it out when I watch it. And there's one point where they're like walking towards the mirror. You think it's the mirror. And they're just walking towards people that are kind of dressed like them and that kind of look like them. And then the people come forward. And I'm like, but then there are mirrors back. In, like, how are they doing it? It should, it's, this came out in 1983 or four or whatever. Like, they, somebody should have just fully explained this in one blog post at this point. And it's infuriating that they haven't. And that's what gets me is you get on these fucking tangents and you go down these holes and then all of a sudden I'm getting mad and I'm like, all right, am I not Googling the right thing? So then Mm. I'm looking up, how do I Google the thing I fucking want on Google? (laughs) I felt insane. (laughs) Been there. Have you, so I'm surprised that there's not like, there's not some like enterprising young gay that, did it a breakdown of it on a YouTube or a TikTok. Right. Like, you know, I'm surprised that there's nobody that knows how that and and they didn't put it on the internet. Really? I think I think people just don't care about chorus line anymore. Yeah. Oh, Even though nice. it was fucking revolutionary. It was one of the yeah. first plays to talk about being gay and like it was a revolutionary play that ran on Broadway for like 12 years. Yeah. No, listen. I think people just don't care about it anymore. You know what you had? You had your vanilla popper moment, I think. I had a vanilla popper moment. I had a, something popped. Yeah. I felt like I had a fucking aneurysm. Because <laughs> I looked up and I'm like, it's a smooth 3 a.m. And yeah. I don't have the answer I want. Yeah. So I'm going to bed angry. 
And I just spent four hours trying to figure this out. Right. And here, look, you have to have listened, like, towards the beginning when we first started to know about the vanilla popper, right? Because we talked about this. It was the episode when we did Footloose and Footloose, right? Like, and here's the thing. Footloose and Footloose Esquire. Yeah, yeah, Footloose and Footloose, (laughs) attorneys of law. Um, I said, I was in the same way that Danielle was, like, feverishly Googling how they filmed this ending, right? <laughs> to a chorus line. I was like trying to figure out like who one of the background characters in the Footloose dance scene at the end of the original Footloose. I was like trying to figure out who this is a very tall white guy who was doing like a pop and lock, like body roll <laughs> sequence, right? And at a certain point, he's actually dancing with Kevin Bacon, like side by. So it's like he was in a scene technically with like the principal lead actor of a film. And yet right. there's no information on this guy. And then, so what did I do? I went, I went on the podcast and I was like, who is the vanilla popper? Who are we? Then for months, if not years, we were getting like tips from listeners being like, it's him. It's this guy. He's a lawyer in Southern California or whatever. And this it's him. And I'm like, I don't believe it until we have the vanilla popper on this podcast talking yes. about, doing body rolls in 1984. We need actual confirmation from the actual person. Right. And and in the in the internet in the scope of the internet investigational arm like the reddits and the no one has gotten confirmation from this lawyer that he right. is the vanilla popper. So I'm sitting here going right. like it's not him. Like it's not him until he actually can prove it in some way and he comes on fucking someone's podcast doesn't matter joe rogan or us or whoever to talk about it so or until we until we find his bones like under the boardwalk (laughs) in santa monica where it's like we just uncovered some bones and they do some fingerprints and they're like was this guy the vanilla popper coming to you live next on abc7 exactly his bones (laughs) are like in a perfectly formed like (laughs) pop like he's like yeah no, we hope he's not dead. I really hope he ain't dead. But I'm just saying, like, I I know what you mean, though, because it's that thing of, like, even, like, you... you Sometimes the information is just not collected in a way on the internet for right. a person like you or anyone to find it, right? Because we're not, yes. like, professional, like, librarians. I don't know yeah. how to do things, like... I truly was about to go to the reference librarian at my library... <laughs> And be like, can you help me with this? No, it is not a book. It is not an article. It is a fucking video from a movie that I need you to help. (laughs) Just because I know you have those sleuth skills. But yeah, it made me... And then here's the thing. I couldn't find it. I guarantee someone is going to send us a link. They probably have already sent 25 links where they're like, oh, here it is. Like, we found it in 10 seconds. I can't. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm trying to warn you about is the vanilla popper event which is that like you know you're gonna have people send you stuff but it's got to be like in the in the purest form the information that you need absolutely you know what i mean send me a video step-by-step video of how this is done or step-by-step i'll look at a step-by-step like eight by eleven sheet you know where they used to put the footprints with the dance steps on it like i'll look at one of those i don't care just somebody show me the legit info and not don't stop at I think this is how they do it. Confirm that this is how they do it. I mean, the other the other option is that you're going to have to fly to L.A. 
and go to like the Academy Museum Library and and just look at production notes for like a month. I would do it. <laughs> at this point, say- I'm so mad I would do it. I'm like, this is the kind of dumb shit you're willing to spend money on when you don't have kids or a partner. Where you're like, I'm just going to hop on a plane and go fucking hang out in the Guild Library. <laughs> Look, you're going to be at one end of the long table researching <laughs> a, the end of the cor- a chorus line, and I'm going to be on the other side doing the vanilla popper deep dive. <laughs> and then the, like lights, <laughs> like the janitor's going to come through with a, with a mop and be like, these two bitches are fucking crazy. It's gonna, it's gonna be like that Tears for Fear Fears video when he looks up and he's like, "Time flies." <laughs> oh no! Except it's both of us at the ends of a table, <laughs> Tears for Fears in it. <laughs> I can't believe you dropped that shit in. <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> You know, I'm always good to rip out a Tears for Fears reference. They were my <laughs> favorite band when I was growing up. I loved them. Yeah. No, I, I love them. When I, I was know. like seven and years old. I'm like, these guys are the fucking shit. And then I grew up and I'm like, oh, there's more music out there. Like, there's oh, Prince. <laughs> I, I love how hard Sowing the Seas of Love goes. So that video is like a like Peter Gabriel on ecstasy. <laughs> You did not think Peter Gabriel videos could get more intense. They went so hard on that video. Oh, yeah. They had, like, flying clocks and fucking flowers (laughs) blooming and shit. And then, like, the best part about that song, though, is that it goes, like, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Like, it's like, they start off with, like, you know, just a verse, and then it's, like, the the chorus. And then it's, like, they start adding layers. And every layer is more dramatic. Oh, it gets orchestral by the end. Yeah, it's the chorus line of songs where you're like, wait, they start out with a guitar and a singer, and they're ending with a full fucking orchestra. How are they doing this? I believe in love power, love power. Like, I'm about to have a fucking heart attack. Look, this, they put like a dirge in the middle. Like there's like a marching band dirge in the middle of that song. Tears for Fears, revisit if you have it. They go fucking hard. They put a- so you're, you've outlined in the course of 20 minutes <laughs> how you absolutely fucking hate Sublime. But the, your number one favorite band of all time is Tears for Fears. That's been the bookends to this to this intro to our podcast. We need to get week. to these movies because I I'll take it to another <laughs> strange place. I'll I'll keep going if we don't get to these movies. Oh, this is gonna be a while. And this I think this is the energy we need for this theme. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> for the past couple of weeks, we've each kind of come to the to the show and been like, I don't know if I interpreted this theme exactly correctly. <laughs> But then we're going to give you a theme and two movies that are undeniably perfect for the theme. Right. Well, okay, so I I think this was my original idea, but then you came back around and renamed it. And I'm actually <laughs> curious why you named it this, because I, I had to, I, speaking of deep dives, I had to Google it. I, I, I Googled what the, our theme was. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I, I renamed it because I thought that 
the original was great, but I feel like I wanted something funny or something like, you know, to kind of bring out the flavor a little more. Oh, no. You don't have to be nice. It, I, you come up with the best names. I am fucking terrible at coming up with theme names. And I very rarely have a good one. Like, I just, like, except for the hang up, mom, I gotta use the internet or whatever the one we did was. But, like, honestly, like, you, that's your, I love that it. That is your thing. And I gotta tell you, like, this has been, like, a problem for me. Like, speaking <laughs> of my own, like, issues. Like, I, I've been a programmer for, like, 20 years <laughs> and I, and I cannot come up with, like, catchy names. <laughs> I am, I gotta say, I am not good at puns, and I don't want to be. I think that's solid. I think that's completely solid. And I'm not good at puns. I think I just go for what's going to make me laugh the most. Yes. Or what's going to make me, like, make you laugh the most. That's really what what it's about for me. No, 100%. And that's totally great. Because here's the thing. Don't put my... If you see something in our schedule that looks boring as shit, like Millie is like, oh, dog movies. (laughs) Awesome. Change it. Change it and make it funny. I am not, I'm not offended at all. Trust me. Well, this one is fucking great. Both, both of them were fucking great. And our theme this week is, but I am Pagliacci. And in, and in little brackets, dark turn movies. That's right. So I don't know about you, Danielle, but I have been wanting to do something like this for a while. Yes. I think it's really fascinating when... Because the whole theme is basically about actors who do a dark turn role. Completely. Right? So anybody that's seen as, like, a comic actor or, like, a, a child actor or something like that that suddenly will do a movie that's very dark where they're either, like, a villain or, like, mm-hmm. a weirdo or something like that. And so, yeah. And I feel like... um in a weird way, I think we're going to be able to talk slightly about All the Way Up, too, yeah. in this kind of, like, side door, especially with my movie. But um, I-, I was actually hoping that you would pick your movie this week, because oh. I had never seen it. <gasps> I knew it. And of the year. I w- have wanted to forever because of the director, mm-hmm. speaking of the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, So... I just was like, yes, I'm going to Trojan horse this theme so that I can watch this movie. Beautiful. And thankfully, Daniel picked it. I so. cannot wait to hear your thoughts on it. And if if you're not aware of the theme reference, it's a joke or a story, you know, story that basically this great, this guy goes to the doctor and he's depressed and the doctor kind of, well, you know, there's this really good clown in town Named Pagliacci, you should go see him. He's like cheers everybody up, and the guy goes, "But I am Pagliacci," so it's kind of like, "Well, I'm depressed, I'm down, I'm dark. There's nothing you can do about it." Even though my job is to be funny, or my job is to be this, like Millie was saying, this lighthearted child actor, funny comical person. I'm doing some dark shit right now. What is your feeling? Just like gut feeling about this like because there have been so many like over the years oh yeah is it something that you are interested in like when you were like oh my god like this actor is now playing a serial killer you know like what is would you see was that appeal to you as a movie watcher it's not the most appealing thing to me because it makes me nervous it makes me very nervous because it is very rarely done well and sometimes you can just see 
too many of the working parts where you're like, oh, this is somebody trying to like reinvigorate or regenerate or change their career. And I don't yes. like that. Like I don't feel I don't like feeling like, oh, you're trying to make me see you in a specific light, even if you're not very good at dramatic acting or you're not very good at yeah. what this you're not good for this part. Um, so I don't like that. It makes me nervous when people do a dark turn movie. But I think in yeah. my case, the primary actor in my movie had done darker turn movies before this one. So I was kind of like, all right, he can pull it off. <laughs> but in your movie, I was like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about that a lot because I <laughs> I think, I, I don't think that he pulled it off whatsoever. Right. We will get, we will get into that, but I, there are so many things too, where I'm like, it kind of can go the other way. Um, where I think that kind of happened with Statham at a certain Mm -hmm. point where, do you remember when he was in spy that Melissa McCarthy movie? And he played like, he kind of became like a love interest. And I remember thinking at the time, this is fucking genius. Like, I'm like, (laughs) I love the fact that they made Statham into this like rom com guy. You know what I mean? Like this is, I this right. is what I've always wanted for him. You know, is to tur- to do a role like this and still keeping you know? that like like he's making fun of himself and how he usually acts in movies by being the rom com yeah. guy. Yeah, so it's kind of like light turn, not the opposite of dark turn. But I sometimes it's it works, but a lot of times it doesn't. And I do agree that it's like. I think it kind of telegraphs this weird, like, oh, here's somebody that, like, wants to be um, taken more seriously or mm-hmm. he they want to become, I don't know, more, kind of, like, more complex. I mean, you can talk about that with, like, the Batman right. and, like, Robert Pattinson and about how Robert Pattinson was initially, like, a teen star and then he started doing, like, weird <laughs> Claire Denis movies and, you know, like, that kind of stuff. And so... I don't know. And and sometimes I feel like it does work. I mean, I think in the case of like him and Kristen Stewart, I mean, I feel like they did actually, yeah. you know, start to become separate from like what their teen image was. But um, a lot of times it's pretty clunky, I would say. Very clunky. And yeah. it's a risk. It's I mean, it's a risk that everyone is taking, the people involved and the audience and everyone is taking this risk. But I think that if you if you come to a dark turn movie because you like the comedy acting of somebody, you are going to be deeply disappointed at some point. Because <laughs> either they pull it off and you're upset because you're like, I will never look at that person the same way again. Or they don't pull it off, and you're like, "Why did you do that to me?" <laughs> well, <laughs> and then in the case of my film, which I just realized I was going first this week. Okay, yeah, so yeah, <laughs> go like, for you it. Know, <laughs> but, I, I will say just to, just to start it out that like I feel like the worst thing you could do is be like blah. Mm-hmm. Right, like you can either be like really over the top or really like, but I just feel like. I don't know. We'll get into it, but um, let's just get into it. Yeah, let's just do it. Why not? Just set it up. Let's talk about dark turns. Um, Coffee, coffee, coffee. uh, 40 ounce, 40 ounce. Okay. So my movie for the theme, But I Am Palagachi, is a movie from 1988. It was written by Jay McInerney based on his book of the same name, directed by James Bridges, and it's called Bright Lights, Big City. Can I ask you one question? Absolutely. Do you ever have this nearly overwhelming desire to just spend a quiet evening at home? <laughs> no. So obviously this is like a, a movie that I've been wanting to bring to the pod 
because of this theme. Yeah. Because I wanted to talk about this theme, and this, for me, is one is a good example. Um, so, just to set it up a little bit, I mean, you know, when it came out in the late 80s, it, you know, got mixed reviews. It At the box office, it kind of, it didn't really do super great. It, it made about half of what they had paid to make the movie. Um, but I also know that it was, like, kind of was kicking around development hell for a while before it was released. And it was attempting to be made in, like, there was a guild strike going on. I mean, lots of different people were attached to it at several different points, inc- including Tom Cruise. At some point, Sidney Pollock, the director, you know, Sidney Pollock was brought in to produce it. And then at one point, Joyce Chopra... And her husband, the director, Joyce Chopra, uh, and her husband were involved in the film. And I feel like they actually, like, wrote it and were, like, getting ready to actually finish it. And then the studio was like, it's not working. I know the writer, Jay McInerney, uh, said that their version had taken out a lot of the drug use and the sort of dark elements to the story. So, anyway, cut to... It gets brought to James Bridges, who, you know, we talked about um, on our episode with uh, Urban Cowboy. He directed Urban Cowboy, amongst many, many other things. And so it kind of just, like, I don't know, it kind of just eventually it came out, but it had a lot of iterations before. And I remember, I think I remember seeing this movie as a child because, of course, the star, Michael J. Fox, right? And then I just remember, I think I watched a part of it or something on HBO and then, or... You know, something, and then I was like, okay, I don't know what that is at all. I don't know what this movie was. And then I just, like, moved on with my life. Like, I I, I didn't think much about it at the time. But I've seen it at least twice since then. And, you know, as much as I do love that thought experiment of, like, a dark turn movie for an actor, I feel like there's something kind of off with Bright Lights, Big City. Completely. And I'm wondering, as you're talking, I'm wondering if it is that you can feel that there were so many hands involved in this film that it almost doesn't have a POV. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that is certainly an interesting concept because it does, sometimes you actually, when you do see movies that you know have been like through the ringer, Mm -hmm. it kind of shows. Like it kind of will show in the final product as much as they hoped that it wouldn't, yep. you know? So yeah, I think that's definitely a valid point. Uh, because here's the thing, I feel like, you know, a, the core of this story is very dark. Like, it's essentially, you know, a story about a young professional who becomes essentially a full-blown co- cocaine addict and uh, alcoholic, right? right. Um, and it's all because of the death of his mother and his recent divorce. So, you know... That's a dark story, right? And then he's also got this, like, really sleazy best friend who is played perfectly by Kiefer Sutherland, who was really good at playing creeps in the 80s. Just born to it. Born to it. Born. And, you know, and their whole scene, like, their social scene in the film seems to be happening during that, like, height of yuppies, like, 1980s New York thing, which we did talk about during American Psycho. But... To that exact point, though, I mean, this movie feels ostensibly like it could be some kind of Brett Easton Ellis type of thing. But I think the reason why it's off is because 
of Michael J. Fox. Like, yeah. And I feel like, you know, at this time in his career, he was America's sweetheart, right? I mean, he had already been Marty McFly. He was Teen Wolf. He was on Family Ties. And he was just sort of like America's sweetheart next door neighbor guy, mm -hmm. right? And I feel like despite his intentions to maybe try something different, I feel like there was just no, there was no, he could not do it. It just wasn't going to happen. There were no teeth. None. And it's also, it's partly that I don't think they went hard enough on the drug and alcohol angle. 100%. Like you rarely see him doing drugs or when you do see him doing drugs, it's very quick. And maybe that was yeah. intentional, but it doesn't, there's not enough there for me to understand what the effect of this drug on his life. Like he seems to be really floundering, but you're like, well, is it because of this drug and alcohol thing? Or is it because he's just kind of upset about his divorce? Like it's just too messy. And maybe again, that was the intention, but, and maybe it's because I'm looking at it with modern eyes, but I don't think they went hard enough in the drug department. I don't think so either. And that's, and that's kind of one of my chief complaints of the film is that I'm like, uh, he didn't snort coke enough on film or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he snorted it a couple times. Like, there's definitely a scene where it's going up the, the nose. Right. Um, which apparently was, I was reading it was milk powder or milk sugar or something like that, obviously. Muscle milk. Um, it was powdered muscle milk going up the old... Shaz. Can I just take a moment and say, I was at the grocery store the other day. You know the one... With the wooden floors that indicate the natural section. <laughs> yes, the smooth transition. The smooth transition. The section. <laughs> there is now something on the market, and it might have been there for a while, and I just blanked it out, called Muscle Mac, and it's Muscle Milk Mac and Cheese. And I'm just going to leave that there, because I, you know oh. I hate it. You know I hate it. I drink Muscle Milk, and I can't even imagine eating that. I'm going to send you disgusting. a box of Muscle Mac, and I want you to tell me every detail of ma from making it to eating it. <laughs> what is it like? No. Not even if I was on some like Hot Ones type of TV show, <laughs> like a Dare to Eat Food TV show. Not even then would I fucking do that shit. That's disgusting. Yeah. Well, he's snorting some powdered milk, and I feel like <laughs> it's the equivalent of eating Muscle Mac. Oh, God, yeah. And, like, look, I is it weird to be like, wow, I wish this guy was even further down the K-hole? Like, look, I could have maybe used an accidentally shit myself scene. Like, something <laughs> that gives, gives you a sense of the gravity of his, of his spiraling. Do you right. know what I'm saying? Right. Like, and there are attempts in the movie... Maybe where that happens, but I feel like if this is ultimately about somebody making poor choices and somebody just being like kind of in a, a spiral uh, of life, I don't know. It just felt yeah. like it didn't go hard enough. On top of that, I have to say, Michael J. Fox looks like he's a teenager, yeah, like all the time. And I think his character in this film was supposed to have been like 24, 25. But I'm like, no, he still looks like he's in high school with boof and styles. Like, this is not... I don't believe that he has his own apartment right now. 
This is too. It felt like he much. was cosplaying, like take your son to work day. <laughs> he's wearing he's wearing his big boy suit to his big boy job. Like I just not. I didn't buy it at all, and I, I think like and there's something about the innocence of his face that. I like yeah. as a comic actor because he's so expressive with his eyes and like he can really bring you to funny moments because his face is so innocent. But as a yeah. hardcore drug addict or someone who's supposed to be spiraling into hardcore drugs and alcoholism, yeah. I felt like even if I can't see it in your face, like the haggardness of it, I want there to be some emotional indication that yeah. this is happening. And I think he was just too... Too young. It was too, he was too young. Yeah, and too kind of like in a very, very, very high point in his career where I think people in his life were like, don't do the Cokehead movie. Like, don't, right. like, we can't go as hard as maybe we, we could have if it had been somebody else. Like, I don't know. And that's very interesting. I think that that is a huge reason why it didn't go darker. That's probably the reason why Michael J. Fox didn't shit himself in his own bed. Is because we loved him too much. You know what I'm saying? We loved him too much to let him shit on screen. <laughs> well, okay. So let me let me just kind of give you a brief like overview of what the movie is about. Maybe this will all make sense um, if you haven't seen it. But um, so Michael J. Fox plays this this young man named Jamie Conway, right? And like we said, like at the beginning of the movie, he, he his life is in fucking shambles. He's a failed writer who is now working as, like, a proofreader or, like, a fact-checker for this, like, very stuffy New York magazine, which I thought was maybe The New Yorker or something like that, right? And um, the thing is, is that he goes so hard that he's just, like, late for work all the time. And his co-workers, including Susie Kurtz, are just constantly covering for him because he just fucking can't get his shit together. And his boss, who is Bunny McDougal from Sex and the City, mm-hmm. she is constantly on his ass. And she has a boss who is played by John Houseman. I think you know why. Because we need an old guy in a suit to be some kind of professor type. To be some New York hard ass. <laughs> yeah. And I and did James Bridges direct the paper chase. Maybe yeah. that's probably that's probably actually why he's in the movie, but also it's like the casting call went out. We're like, we need an intelligent older man. And they're like, John Hausman. Yeah, look look no up. further. Look no further. Right. So here's the thing. So that's all happening at his his job. I mean, he's like very dangerously close to being fired, and then he actually does get fired at a certain point. But additionally, Jamie's wife, Amanda has just recently left him. His wife is played by Phoebe Cates, who we can't really talk about anymore after the Kevin Klein episode. His entire family has been eradicated from the podcast. They're not allowed to listen. We love them, though. Because Danielle went too hard on loving him. I went too hard on loving him and them and all of them. And I, we just, yeah, we, we've shot ourselves in the foot on that one because right. I could go hours <laughs> on how much I love that family. Yeah. So if anybody's listening from the Klein family, please press stop. You're not allowed contractually to listen to the rest of this episode. So, okay. Jamie's wife, Amanda, just left him. She is moved to Paris, perhaps. Um, Because here's the thing. At some point while they were together, Amanda 
started a modeling career, it took off. And this was happening at the same time that Jamie's writing career didn't take off, Mm -hmm. right? So it's the kind of thing where, like, she ended up becoming a star, and he was sort of left in the lurch in his mind. Right. Right? Which is also a very interesting concept, because I feel like that happens a lot oh, in absolutely. relationships. Absolutely. Right? And they could have, again, like if it were made today, it would be so different. But I think I wanted to know more about and see more about the fragility of this guy's ego. Yeah. Like I wanted more of that. Well, and, and, and weirdly enough, she is painted as the bad guy, for lack of a better term, because it's like, She's basically like, well, I'm beautiful and famous, and now I have this, like, French photographer boyfriend, and sorry, buddy, you're just an addict who sucks or whatever. And it just doesn't really get, like, their conversation never happened. Like, their whole, like, processing, whatever. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. They could have done a lot more with that storyline. Yeah, and for half of the movie, like, before she even shows up, half of the movie is in flashback where it's silent. Like, they're not, she's not even speaking or having conversations with him. Yeah. I mean, they they went, like, 10 minutes on the fact that she had to get, like, a mannequin of herself made. She was so beautiful that they were like, we have to have a fake version of her in a store window. We got to copy this face immediately. Well, and, like, the first time that I saw it, like, as an adult, I was, like, uh, hoping that the the movie would turn into a mannequin. Like, yes. the movie mannequin, where she, her mannequin would then come alive, and then they would have a romance, and everybody would be like, he's just talking to a doll. What an origin story. If the origin of Mannequin is the original Mannequin was dating a like a coke addict, had enough, left, they made a mold of her face, she turns to this Mannequin, and then next thing you know, Hollywood is behind her with some sick-ass glasses telling her she's fierce as fuck. I know. In the infamous words of Jerry Blank, two Mannequins. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Anyway, um, so anyway, here's the thing. So because he's had all this stuff happen to him, he is now a full-blown cocaine addict, okay? Which means that he does coke at work um, from, like, little stashes that he's hidden in his desk and whatnot. So that's bad, okay? That's when he shows up to work. Like, he shows up late to work, and then he starts doing coke while he's at work, so... He's in the bell jar, as we know. And part of the reason why he shows up late to work is because he's out every night with his friend Tad Alakash, who was played by Kiefer Sutherland, as we've said. And, like, they are the type of dudes that, like, go out at 1 Mm a.m. Okay? Like, when you start the night at 1 a.m., that's that's rough, okay? Yeah. And they shut it down. Like, it's the kind of thing where, like, they're the last people there. The lights come up. The announcer's like, get out of here. I mean, it's crazy. Like, they like, They miss the sunrise. Like, when they leave the club, the sun is up. Like, the sun is up yeah. and the world is moving. Right. And in the 80s, I suppose, the you know, instead of playing, like, Donna Summer's Last Dance as a last song, it's Pump Up the Volume. Like, when Pump Up the Volume comes on, it's like, yo, it is late. We gotta go home now. Why that makes me laugh so hard. Pump up the volume, dance, dance. And then they're like, bye. <laughs> bye. Actually, don't dance. Don't dance. Dance home. The opposite of this Dance song. home in a cab. <laughs> By the way, I will say, like, uh, we're doing a lot of asides on this episode. Sorry, it's this coffee. Pump up the volume was the very first 
piece of music I ever purchased. What? With my own money. Because singles? It was the 12-inch single on vinyl. Damn. That I bought at a store on an Air Force base. (laughs) (laughs) So I, and I, and I swear to God, it was like my favorite song when I was like in 1988, basically when it came out or 89. I was like, and I, and I would, it was like literally the, the record, it was a record. It was a, a piece of vinyl. And then I played it on my dad's record player and, thought it was so cool because I was like, I own this. I own music. This <laughs> explains so much. <laughs> that is your first purchase and you spend 90% of your life dancing right now. I know. It got into you early and deep. It it really did set the set the table for my <laughs> subsequent life. Um okay, so here's the thing. Slowly throughout the film it gets more and more complicated for Jamie. It's being revealed that, you know, his life is spiraling because of his mother, right? Who was played by Diane Weist. And there are flashback sequences where she's basically, she has cancer, she's sick, and Jamie is more or less at her bedside. And, you know, it's completely traumatized him, right? And it's traumatized him to the point where, like, he's avoiding his little brother who is trying to get in touch with him because he's like, it's been the one-year anniversary of her mother's death. We have to go spread her ashes. Like, and and Jamie is literally running away from his brother. Like, his brother finally is, like, shows up to his, where he lives, and then uh, Jamie takes off, like, in a cokehead run that I have never seen on film. It is an absolutely hilarious scene. It's one of the best scenes in the movie where he just takes the oh, bug yeah. off. And his brother is played oh, by like, Charlie Schlatter, who we, yes. we know from many George Burns, from that George Burns movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was in the TV version of Parker Lewis Can't Lose. That's right. Right? Or, Adorable. He did some version of Parker Lewis. Because Parker Lewis was a TV show. So I don't know what version he did. Maybe an updated version. And now he does a lot of voice acting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you knew all that about him. I did not prepare for that for him I will bring out the weird facts about your 80s actor, as we know from Elf's, the dad on Elf. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So so he's avoiding his, this entire reality, right, Jamie? And... It's traumatized him to the point where, I mean, a lot of this is because of his drug use and his drinking, but like, so there's this runner through the film of this New York Post slash like Weekly World News type of tabloid article of the coma baby. You know, I could go an hour on the coma baby. You know, I I know. And that's why I'm setting it up real nice for you because we got to talk about this coma baby thing. So basically in the film, it's like this tabloid story about this pregnant woman who's in a coma. And Jamie is seeing this everywhere. And it's become like, it's like the national fascination of this coma baby and whether or not the coma baby is going to survive, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, obviously it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the coma baby is like a metaphor for Jamie's life, Right. right? And then he ends up having this dream one night about it which is so fucking insane. <laughs> the movie the movie just slides into 
<laughs> like horror movie for a moment. It just sounded like a gentle, like you, it's a dream sequence. So you're like, all right, it's a dream. And then it just slides into like Argento territory. Yes. Or like Cronenberg. Basically what? Like it's a Cronenberg movie all of a sudden. Yes. It's like a Eraserhead meets It's Alive <laughs> type of thing where it's an actual puppet baby like a animatronic baby in a womb in a womb who has like it's like michael j fox's voice but if he was a 1930s gangster i don't know the baby's talking all tough you see like and i'm like okay don't really know why like this womb baby needs a cigarette dangling out of its mouth yes this womb baby needs to be holding like a revolver and smoking a cigarette but it is one of the weirdest things to just randomly happen in a film. Like, Completely. it just really is so weird. It's Did so, she think? It is, it's jarring. Like, you're looking at the screen and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what? I had to pause it and text you and be like, wait, what is happening in your movie? Yeah. Like, I forgot and, and this whole scene. <laughs> And it only happens the one time. The the baby, the animatronic baby doesn't come back, as far as I know. So bizarre. It's weird. And because it's a metaphor for him, you're like, I either want this to be more pronounced or you can't go so so hard on it that you have an animatronic puppet. Like, right. let it live in subtlety or really amp this shit up. Like, have that baby walking around with him and, like, he's looking in corners and he's seeing the fucking baby and, like... <laughs> He's snorting coke with the baby, like, like really amping <laughs> shit up. The baby's like popping up behind his shoulder and be like, yeah, get it. Like, or whatever. Like, you know, it's like, get that. I, Tim, yeah, I, I just think in isolation in this one scene, it's very strange. And considering that there are genuine moments of like darkness to the story that I'm like, I, it's just so, so bizarre that it happens. Only that one time. Completely. And so anyway, okay. We the coma baby was definitely like on the docket. We had to get into it. But like <laughs> eventually I think Jamie realizes, you know, so Amanda comes back to New York. He gets completely blasted and tries to disturb her on, you know, during one of her fashion shows. And then he kind of is bottomed. Like he's like, he's there's actually this pretty emotional scene between him and the Swoozie Kurtz character where he, like, goes to her apartment and he's, like, confessing and all these things about his life and he's, like, slinging this bottle of wine around the room. I actually think it's probably the best scene of the movie. But I also feel like there was still, even in that scene, a moment where I was like, this is so strange because I don't see, I don't find him convincing at all. Like, his bottoming out is not convincing to me no and it's part of it is his voice like his voice is very childlike still and like very high-pitched and you know he's kind of talking about like bottoming out like that's no big deal like he's just kind of like it's a very strange like physical performance um yeah but yeah i just i didn't i wasn't buying it at all i just wasn't there getting there with him and it could have been it could have been a very effective scene but yeah it i don't think it gave the effect that they were hoping for yeah, and, like, you know, honestly, like, this would be a moment to go all the way up. Mm-hmm. Like, to just go all the way up for this movie, right? But I just feel like it's, there was seemed to be, like, a resistance to doing it, and I just don't think. I think it's it's both, like, 
the idea that as an actor, maybe he just couldn't get to that point, you know, right. um, to go that dark, but that also his image wouldn't have allowed that either. So, you know, it's, it's, but it's an interesting thought experiment to see it happening, right? Because you're just like, oh, okay, like this is a dark story, but then there's an actor who's kind of like not right for the part doing it. And like, yeah. what does that look like? Well, especially because Kiefer um, Sutherland is right there. And we all right. know from his, his personal life experience, we all know yeah. that Kiefer Sutherland has had some experiences that might have been yes. able to help this film. Yeah. I feel like if you had Kiefer do the Jamie role, it would be too dark. Yeah. You'd be like, holy fucking shit. Like, this guy's a maniac. Let's keep him as Ted Allagash. Well, and like, I will say that one of the best things about the movie is actually the soundtrack. Yeah. Perhaps fittingly, you know, Donald Fagan did the music for the movie, which it's like funny because I feel like you do have to get a guy from Steely Dan <laughs> to do a movie about cokeheads. <laughs> ah, <laughs> <you know>? ah, <laughs> uh but the lo- a lot of the music in the film is like, you know, New Order and Depeche Mode. And then you've got one of my favorites, Kiss and Tell by mm-hmm. Brian Ferry, which is like such a good song to listen to when you're like doing some lines <laughs> before heading to the Palladium at like 1 a.m. You know, your 1 a.m. Palladium shift. Look, I I will say, you know, it's a mixed bag for this movie for me. But honestly, like, I'm glad that I, I got to talk about it in this theme in this way with you because yeah yeah it's just it's one of those things where you're just like yeah what would happen if of america's sweetheart did a movie where he was just a big old cokehead and like a big drinker and had problems and i just don't think yeah you know i don't think i i went i could feel that within him I'm, unfortunately i'm glad that this was your your choice for this theme too because i think it it just exhibits kind of the other side of what can happen when you take an actor to a dark place that they're not ready to go to. And again, like how you can see those moves coming from a career standpoint, but, you know, the believability of it might not be there. And I just, I really liked kind of being back at this moment in time because I think that has a lot to do with it too. That, you know, when this movie came out, we weren't really, it wasn't that we weren't used to seeing or hearing stories about, young actors, child actors, you know, formerly famous stars who had dark patches in their life. I just think that the kind of, the 80s-ness of it kind of lent itself to being, like, they weren't willing to look at themselves too starkly in the moment. Like, I think there have yeah. been a lot of movies that have come out since about the 80s that kind of portray it in a more realistic light. But at the time, yeah. I think they weren't willing to, like, really look at themselves starkly and say, like, you know, this is... Like, it's not all just fun and neon. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, we can get dark with this if we if we need to. Yeah, well, and like, and this is no uh, slight to Michael J. Fox's talent as an actor. No. I think he's very talented. We just love you too much, MJF. We love you too much. We hold you in too high of esteem. We could not imagine you doing bumps, you know, under some, like, LED bulbs in an office, like, <sighs> But then desperately trying to to wake yourself up from a night out, you know what I mean? Like we just couldn't do it. Couldn't do it then. But now, again, like in his later career, he's done hilarious roles where he plays a total dickhead. Like his role on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he was on Rescue Me, and like he's done roles since where he can be that guy. And I think his physicality now matches that kind of yeah. stance. So, yeah. at the time, we just couldn't get there. We wanted you to be Teen Wolf, Teen Wolf in it. Exactly. Exactly. Well. 
Ooh, your movie. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. My movie for the theme <laughs> of But I Am Pagliacci was released in 2002. It was written and directed by Mark Romanek, and it's called One Hour Photo. You're a very lucky man, Mr. Jordan. You have a wonderful family. And if you don't mind my saying so, a very beautiful house, too. I'm sorry? Now, I've seen in different interviews, sometimes his name is pronounced Romanic, sometimes it's Romanic. Um, so if I've cr- incorrectly pronounced it, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but I fucking love my movie. I saw it when it came out in the theater. And part of what I, what drew me to this film is that I really loved Mark Romanek as a director of music videos. He has directed some of the most iconic music videos that have ever existed. Mm-hmm. I'm talking Nine Inch Nails Closer. I'm talking Woo! the Johnny Cash cover of Hurt. I'm talking uh, Lenny Kravitz, Are You Gonna Go My Way? I'm talking Madonna's Rain. Like, he is directed. He has such a strong visual style and clarity. And each of those videos is so different from the other, but they all have his stamp on it. Like, he's a really thoughtful and personable director in that way. And his first film, Static, was released in 1985. He kind of started as a, as a production assistant and worked his way worked his way up. And this movie, When Our Photo, is his second full-length feature. Mm-hmm. And I love little details about this movie, like a lot of the character names are reference, referencing real photographers, um, like Vonna Unworth and stuff like that. I love those little Easter eggs. But there's something about the look of this movie and the sound of this movie that is also incredibly haunting to me. So I looked up, I'm like, why is this so affected, affecting? Like, it's just always, since, since the first time I saw it, it's always been a very memorably effective movie to me. And the director of photography for this movie is um, Jeff Cronenworth. And he was the DP for, he's, he's the DP for most of David Fincher's films. So I'm like, oh, that's why it has such like a stark... Yeah clarity to it um so mm-hmm. he did gone girl and girl with the dragon tattoo and social network but then the music <laughs> was made the music the music supervisors were reinhold uh heil and johnny klimek and reinhold was in um the nina hagen band and oh. he kind of met klimek and like the berlin dj techno scene okay but they also did the music for deadwood and for Cloud Atlas. So there's like this real sparing, okay. haunt, haunting kind of, uh, you know, kind of a, a an effect that they have with their, the music that they produce for soundtracks. And it reminds me of like how Johnny Greenwood is also now in that, that space where he was, you know, he's a mm-hmm. musician in a very popular band. But when he does music for things like Phantom Thread or when he works with certain directors, his style is so specific. Like you can tell mm-hmm. what his music is. So... I mention that because the look of this film, the feel of this movie lends itself to the darkness, even when it's bright and, you know, again, clear and very, very stark. Um, I can give you a one sentence synopsis, a photo processor at a local uh, Target-like store becomes obsessed with a family. And that's bare bones what it's about. So... One thing that's interesting is we start this movie with the primary actor in this film, Robin 
Williams, who plays Cy Parrish, and he's talking to police officers. So you already know at the beginning of the film that he's been arrested. And the movie itself kind of takes you through the steps of how that came to be. Um, But even the arrest has a little twist to it at the end, which I kind of appreciated. But he, Robin Williams is playing someone that is instantly recognizable to me as creepy in this movie. And it's like, he has a bleach blonde hair and he's wearing Mm. like the, he's got his uniform at work, but even when he's not in his uniform, like he looks, he looks creepy. And he kind of, he's smiling a lot, but it's not a, a genuine smile. And so you can kind of tell that like, this is a guy who's holding a lot back. And I think that's what I, what made me want to dig into like, who's the director of photography? Like who helped create the look of this movie? Because yeah. you're in this store with him most of the time. That's very like white and bright. And, you know, there's the signage is very specific and clear. And it made me realize, or I guess my opinion is that it's the starkness of the film has to be there to hide the chaos of what's going on inside of his head. So he instantly reads to me as a very chaotic and creepy person. Yeah, that outfit is... (laughs) I I wanted to talk to you about it because I was like, I know that you did that epic game a few episodes back of serial killer self-care. And I feel like owning polyester slacks... Mm -mm. Is, is definitely serial killer territory. Oh, yeah. You're either elderly or a serial killer. Yeah. And and that, to me, uh, it was almost like um, if you wanted to be less creepy, just wear jeans, different pants. <laughs> yeah, wear jeans. Wear like a cotton chino. Like, just do something. Because the outfit is so severely creepy. Yeah. And it also matches, it's almost like he's presenting, it's like he's someone who wants to simultaneously fade into the background or who has taught himself to fade into the background, but wants so desperately to be part of things. So his outfit is like very tan and it kind of matches his hair color and it kind of matches his skin tone. And he's just like blank. He's a blank. Yeah. Oh, it's creepy. Yeah. Like, and I also too, like, I'm just fascinated by like, his job because I feel like he's got that coworker that's like way younger than him. Mm-hmm. He is so out of place everywhere he goes. Like he has nothing yes. to latch onto that makes you feel like he's part of society. So even in his job, he's wildly out of place and he takes his job very seriously. He, Sai is also kind of the narrator of the film. Like he pops in in moments and talks about, you know, how film is mimicking life. And, you know, he has all these, you know, these, these thoughts about how, you know, people never take photos of things that they want to forget. And like, he just kind of takes you through his mind in the film as we're, as we're watching him go through his day. And again, creep factor is high with him. The look, yeah. everything is, creep factor is high. So what's really happening in this film, and the, the focus of his obsession, is this family called the Yorkins. So the Yorkins are comprised of uh, Nina, who's played by Connie Nielsen, Will, the dad, who's played by Michael Varton, and Jacob, who is played by Dylan Smith. And do you remember Michael Varton, man? He was everywhere for a while. I That is like one of the top things that I wanted to bring to the table, because I was like, this was... Feels like the high era of Michael Vartan is how I pronounce yeah. it. I don't know. I'm sure it's probably wrong. It's probably Vartan. Um, I, 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 yours sounds better. It sounds more distinguished. Vartan sounds much better than Vartan. 
But you know what was really triggering about seeing him again is that haircut he had. I know. I know. <laughs> he had that like, early 2000s guy haircut. <laughs> ooh, and like and like his wife, the woman that plays his wife, they both look like they were in a Scandinavian pop band. Like they had that like Absolutely. cardigans hair like she looked like she had the, it was kind of that like hair that kind of flipped up at the ends and then he had kind of like a long sh- man i was like bringing me back what are these like brit pop haircuts they have it's crazy she had she wore her hair in those like tiny buns that like stuck out yes and i was like oh my gosh yes. this is bringing me back this is bringing me back but Ooh, yeah so they my, yeah and he was like the king hottie because yeah. he was in what's that show that alias, alias. was he an alias yeah yeah yeah, he was everywhere for a while. And, yeah. um, you know, they're playing, again, this couple that is very successful. And they have this kid who's nine years old. And, you know, they, they on the outside, seem to be like that family. Like, they are the perfect family. And he runs his own business. And it's a very successful design business. And, you know, but on the inside, as we come to find out through the, you know, certain moments of the film, Will and Nina aren't getting along too well. And there is a scene where... <laughs> Will, or Nina and Will are having a fight in the kitchen. And she's mad at him because he works so much. And he's like, well, how do you think I pay for all this stuff? And she just levels him with, you're emotionally neglectful. You're an emotionally neglectful father and husband. And it is an incredible wow. scene. She just she's like, and, <laughs> and then she says, do you hear what I'm saying? Do you? Like, she is just like, let's not mince words. You're being an absent fucking dickwad right now. <laughs> wow yeah so they're having these like real fights but again from the outside in you look at them and you're like this is a perfect family and that's what Cy sees so Cy Parrish has been developing their photos for a long time and Nina comes to the store to get Jacob's uh, ninth birthday pictures developed creep factor is high because he she's talking originally to um the guy that he works with who is um Yoshi Araki is the guy's the character's name, but it's played by Paul Kim Jr. And so she's talking to Yoshi, and Yoshi's like, What's your address? And he just comes up, Sai just comes up from behind and is like, Their address is 326. Like he knows their address by heart. I'm yep. already, I'm already out on Creep Factor. I'm like, I will take my photo somewhere else. Um, but he knows the address. Oh, we know that about you. Oh, hell yeah. I'm like <laughs> You don't fuck around. <laughs> oh, I will snatch that shit off the counter and walk away with not a word. Like, you don't even need to know why I'm leaving. I'm out. But it's also the thing that I wanted to, the part of the reason why I wanted to bring this movie in for, for our dark turn theme is that the 90s were dark in that way. Like, do you remember, yeah. like, the, the, the notion of having your photos developed and having people look at your life before they gave it back to you to look at, it's kind of a creepy notion. And I've had friends yeah. who've worked in photo stores and they're like, oh yeah, like we look at all the pictures. And they, there's a moment in the film where he's walking through like, these are the different types of people that come in and there's a woman who only takes pictures of her cat and there's the amateur pornographer and there's like, you know, like you just kind of, like they have a relationship with you that you might not even be aware of and that was so much of the 90s. <laughs> well, yeah, and that I think was such a huge, like, you know, like I said, I I, I didn't see this movie when it came out. And that was kind of this, like, weird notion when I was watching it was that I was just like, oh, yeah, remember when, like, people used to get their photos developed by complete fucking strangers working at, like, a Walgreens or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we j- I think we had so much trust back then that, the, that you were just going to, like, have somebody who didn't care and wouldn't keep the photos or, you know. And I'm just like, damn, I can't believe I used to drop photos <laughs> off at a stranger, like... 
That's crazy. Like, it's wild. Look at this movie. Look what's happening. (laughs) And you didn't even know it was going to come back because you didn't know if you got the shot or if you got the right. Like, you're just taking pictures with your friends and you're like, I don't know. Maybe this will come out. Maybe it won't. So they know before you do what even works. It's it's wild. It's wild. Um, But yeah, Cy takes the shot very seriously, but he's. Uh, he's clearly having an inappropriate reaction or, or an appropriate relationship with this family from the first time we see them. And Nina's really nice about it. It's kind of, there's a sweet scene where they go home and, and Jake feels bad because he thinks that Sai is a sad person who doesn't have any friends. And that kid is fucking right. Like, I hope he is, I, in my mind, this character of Jake goes on to create like a Miss Cleo style clairvoyant <laughs> phone line. <laughs> Because he could not have been more... His gut instinct about this dude was spot on. Um, but yeah. part of what's set up in this this film and the creepiness of it is that he's creepy with the whole family. So he's creepy with the kid, he's creepy with the mom, he's creepy with the dad, all in very different ways. And he, you know, they, so they come in, they bring in this this camera and he's like, oh, you've got one more picture. He takes a picture of himself to finish the role. When they get the pictures developed, he puts the picture in... <laughs> their fucking envelope and when they go home they're like who's this oh it's Cy and they kind of put it on their fridge in a joking manner that will come back to haunt them so we're seeing Mm. him kind of escalate um, slowly the movie escalates about how deep this obsession goes so at first when he goes home you see that he has framed photos of the Yorkin family where he has, like, their Christmas card and, like, pictures of them as if they're his own family. And Mm. he's at a diner and he's looking at copies of the pictures that he just made of the pictures they just brought in. So he made Mm. some pictures for himself of, like, he doubled them or, you know, he made... Whenever he develops their pictures, you're realizing that he makes a set for himself. And then there's this point where he's sitting down watching TV and you pull back to reveal that he has an entire wall of photos of this family from the time that Jacob, before Jacob was born, like when she was pregnant with this kid. So for over nine years, he has been obsessed with this family. Mm. And he has pictures like lining his wall, like wallpaper. It is so fucking intense and he's just sitting there yeah. like you know this is my family and so the escalation and you know kind of the 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 narration of it is is him talking about how pictures are supposed to connect people but then you realize that he lives alone and again his apartment is just as stark as the rest of his life and he has no connection with people other than the photos he develops and he's not obsessing yeah. over any one particular family besides the Yorkins. But there is kind of a tinge of this is how he's learned to be part of of society. It's just by obsession um, and mm-hmm. stalking. So his obsession does take a, a turn towards stalking. His boss, played by Gary Cole, uh, kind of sees him pop off on a photo tech and is like, don't you have some vacation time stored up? I kind of love that. Whenever a boss is like, don't you have some vacation? You're like, oh, I should, I should take a few days off. I should calm myself down. <laughs> Get out of here. Fuck out of here. But he, it, it it escalates to him, like, fantasizing about breaking into their house. Mm. The creepiest part of that fantasy for me is when he took a shit on their toilet. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, Cy. <laughs> like, I was like, you really want to get in there. Like, you want to leave your mark. You want to really leave your mark on this bowl and in this family's life. 
And then he starts, you know, so that's like a fantasy that he's having. And we're watching him kind of stare at the house, but he's fantasizing about breaking in. Then he, in real life, shows up to Jake's soccer practice. And they have a weird interaction where he tries to give him a toy that he kind of saw him looking at in the store. Um, He's already given the kid a free camera. He sees the mom at a, a food court and um, in the mall where he works. And it's like, you know, what a coincidence. We're both reading Deepak Chopra. And then you realize that every element of his life is designed to attract these people to him. So he's kind of mimicking the things that they do. And he could have seen that book on a nightstand photo that they took, but he, every element of his life is kind of designed to bring him closer to these people in his mind. And that conversation is kind of weird too, because he's like, oh, I feel like I'm like Uncle Sai because I've watched you, your family grow. And she's like, haha, yeah, uh, bye. <laughs> so don't say that shit. Don't say not, that shit. Not in this economy. Do not say that. Like, not in this economy I mean, is right. No, I mean, it, like, I there was there were moments where I was like, this guy is trying to get busted. Like, he's basically, like, going... <laughs> he's doing the thing. He's going over the edge. And he knows it. Way know? over the edge. And then you you kind of wonder, too, like, he's doing all these things that anyone who's worked a retail job or any kind of service job would realize, like, any one of these things will get you fired. So how is he getting yeah. away with this? Well, as it turns out, he's not. Because his manager is really starting to pay attention to how creepy this dude is. And mm-hmm. he's like, um, so there have been hundreds of photos that have been developed without being checked. Like, basically, we know you've been printing and stealing photos of something or someone somehow. Mm-hmm. And you gave away a free camera and, like, you're kind of, he, like, the manager just kind of calls him on how creepy he is. And he fires him. And that kicks off a creep count to this movie that goes to a place that I could never envision. So at first, you're kind of left wondering, like, when the, when he gets fired, it's devastating for him. And he's just had an experience where he saw this woman who brought in a roll of pictures to develop, and he kind of thought he knew her, but he wasn't sure. He goes home and looks at his wall of Yorkin and realizes that this woman works for Will. So he's been given a week after he gets fired. He's been given a week to to leave, which again, never do that. If you're ever a person who's in the position to fire someone, they are gone that day. Don't let them come back and start stealing computers and files and shit and fucking with your shit. Take their keys. <laughs> Take those keys. Take their keys. <laughs> Very important. So he starts to really fuck with people. Uh, on the heels of being fired, and he goes through Maya's photos and realizes that she's having an affair with... She and Will are having an affair. Hmm. Uh, So he slides one of the photos of her and Will together into an envelope of pictures that that the Yorkers have just developed uh, that Jake took with his camera that Cy gave him for his birthday. Mm. So he's, like, got all these cute pictures of, like, toys and, you know, like, really close-up overblown shots of like being at Great Adventure or Disneyland. And then there's a picture of his dad kissing another woman. Ooh. So he's already laying the groundwork to creep this up. I do not want to ruin the end of the movie, but the wheels come off after this point. And it starts with, he takes a bunch of pictures that we don't know what he's looking at, but he's talking about how taking pictures was originally, uh, the word snapshot was developed as a hunting term. Then he takes them into the store to get developed. 
And Gary Cole is like, what the fuck are you doing here? Yoshi develops the photos. And he's like, we got a problem. He went and took all of these pictures of his manager's kid playing outside their house. So the manager calls the cops. Now the cops are involved and their movie takes an intense turn. But let's just say Psy 100% does something so fucked up with Will and Maya. (laughs) And I didn't expect that. I thought for sure he was going to like kidnap the kid or like, you know, the movie is set up in a way that you think it's going to go one way and then it absolutely does not. But what he does is devastating to everyone involved. Yeah. So I'm curious, having never seen this film, what were your initial thoughts on the darkness of it? On, you know, did he pull off the darkness in a way that Michael J. Fox didn't? Um, like, what were your thoughts on seeing this and knowing this ending is coming? Like, what what did you think? I mean, quite honestly, I, like, totally was not rooting for uh, the character, but was, like rooting for Robin Williams like in a way that was like this is awesome like i like i was actually just like looking at his like i did some research after watching the movie of course of course um and i was like kind of looking at his film career like right like before you know i mean i was obviously he had been he had done so many movies before this but like i was like oh but all the movies that he had done were like kind of big movies like you know, Dead Poet Society and mm-hmm. Awakenings. And I mean, he'd done a couple of things that were like interesting. Yeah, Goodwill Hunting but, and, you know. Yeah, Aladdin, Mrs. Dalfire. I mean, like all these huge movies. Um, and there were, like you said, I think at the beginning, uh, you know, you were saying that he had done movies that weren't as like, you know, because obviously like his performance style was very like big and buffoonish and kind of manic. And he was like this, just this, you know, big, you know, comic performer. So anytime you would see him in, like, a smaller, like, quieter role, Mm -hmm. it was a little, like, wow, okay. And I think that that did happen. Like, even when he was in, like, stuff like The Birdcage, I mean, there were moments of The Birdcage where he was actually, like, really thoughtful and interesting. But for some reason, I was like, I don't know why I thought this movie... Because I remember when the movie came out and I felt like everybody was like, holy shit. Like, Robin Williams plays like a fucking maniac stalker killer, right? Because that's what I really remember about the movie when right. when I think when I thought about it before. And so I was like, I don't know, in a weird way, I was kind of like, yeah, dude, like, go this way. And then I remember the movie that came out after was Death to Smoochie, mm-hmm. which I saw in the movie theater and was like, yo, this is cool. Like, I'm, I I was, like, kind of rooting for him to go in kind of a more artsy, weird, yeah, you know, less like Patch Adams and more, like, Shakes the Clown. Right. You know right. what I mean? Like, go in a, a different direction. And so, I don't know, like, obviously, like, now, knowing about his entire career and everything, I'm like, it felt like almost in, in a way like we talked about this, I think, before with like one of his movies where we felt like we missed him. Yeah. Dead Poets Society, we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt was I was like, yo, I miss this. I miss this era of like when Robin Williams went from, you know, being like America's sweetheart to like this creepy ass yeah. fucking dude. And we talked about so, it in Insomnia too. Like he he's done yeah. this isn't his first dark turn, but he definitely yeah. he was he's someone who I think was was so good at it and so able to act with restraint in a way that yeah. made it feel like he was a totally different person because we were used to that yeah. that big personality guy. 
And it was really yeah. cool to me, not just from a visual perspective, but just like from a, you know, like knowing this guy exists in the world. Like it's cool to see that he was able to harness something different for each yeah. of these dramatic roles that made me see him in a totally different light. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously I feel like this movie might have actually like given people the opportunity to see like what he could actually do with like weirder, darker stuff. Because I feel like you don't have a movie like World's Greatest Dad without this movie. Like right. I feel like, you know, this kind of like opened the door for him to do like a lot more weird stuff. Totally. You know? And I and I fucking love that yep. for him. Like, uh, you know, that's great. I mean, I know he's obviously deceased, but you know what I mean? Like in the trajectory of his career, that yeah. felt like a good move. And there were times where I did really feel sorry for his character. Absolutely. Like, you know, to talk about like the loneliness of people and, mm -hmm. you know, him wanting to connect so badly. But then there were times where he showed up at the fucking kid's soccer game and I'm like, why are you there, bro? Like, this is not good. Yes. You know? And that's... His parents aren't even here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, this kid's going home on his own bike. Like, nobody's here for this kid. But it's it's wild. And I, it, again, to me, it's, it's a, a good relationship between directing and acting that yeah. we were able to feel sympathy for this guy who was so clearly damaged. And you yeah. learn a little bit more about his damage by the end of the movie. And it's yeah. very shocking and sad, but... It's not used until that point. Like, it's not a, a plot point that, you know, kind yeah. of fuels this guy. So you're really left in a questioning role that I really appreciate, that you can't yeah. quite nail him down. You just know that something is not right. Like, something yeah. is really off about this dude. Yeah. No, and listen, I, I definitely think that there's a huge, a huge gulf between my film and your film in that way. Like, I feel like... You know, as much as I felt like Michael J. Fox just couldn't hit it, couldn't hit the darkness, couldn't, like, get into the character, that very dark character, I feel like Robin Williams did it. Like, totally. he just really, he really made it convincing. And I just think he was a, he was older, he was a different type of, you know, comic actor. He had started in stand-up. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if Michael J. Fox ever did stand-up. But you know what I mean? It just had a, he had a different trajectory, which I think allowed him to be able to play a character like this versus Michael J. Fox, who I think at the time, he was young. He was just kind of at the height of his career. He hadn't made right. too many movies by that point. So we weren't ready. Absolutely. But I think I was ready for this for with Robin Williams. Completely. So, and it's also you know, just, again, like not to constantly compare the two but we did put them in a theme together um but sure. i think that the one of the big differences for me is that maybe it's because you know the character of sai you were able to see some vulnerability or some way into feeling for him and i didn't really yeah. feel anything for jamie i'm like so he's this guy who's got a job who's being shitty to his wife because his career isn't taken off the way he wants it to like it didn't give me anything to hold on to and then yeah. by the time the scenes with his mom come up i'm like oh i get it but i don't know if i care whereas with it's too little too late yeah, kind of thing. yeah. and so with sai yeah. i feel like you're kind of like all right some like i feel bad for anyone who feels so out of place in our culture, yeah. but I also feel like I can't be around that person. Like, I don't want to be around, like, they creep me out, So I, but I feel yeah. bad for them. So it kind of gives you something more tangible um, to yeah. access in the film. Yeah. No, no, I totally agree. I think it's just a matter of setup. I think, it, it, you know, uh, I look, I was a huge fan of Mark Romanek when I was in, in the 90s. I mean, I remember when Closer mm. 
came out on MTV. Freaked people the fuck out. It was like a fucking event. <laughs> like, I don't know if people actually know this. If you're a little bit younger and you don't remember like the MT- like the high era of MTV playing music videos, but like there were certain videos that were like world premiere events. Like, you know, Madonna, when she did um, like a prayer, mm-hmm. uh, I remember running home from school to watch I Want Your Sex by George yeah. Michael. <laughs> You know, it was like these things where it was like, oh my God, they're about to play like the the premiere of the video for this artist. And it was like this like scandalous, like sexy thing. And I remember when, because at the time I was a huge Nine Inch Nails fan and I fucking loved the downward spiral. When I came, when it came out, I was like, this video is so crazy. (laughs) Like the whole like Trent Reznor spinning in air and as, you know, and like the scenes missing. Do you remember when they took out this? And I was like freaked out by yeah. that. Yeah, I'm like how bad was it that they took it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. And I re- and I remember when they. So knowing that he had made like all these videos, like he made Fiona Apple's criminal video. Yep. Which remember when that shit came out, everybody was like, "Oh my god, this is like sleazy '70s porn." Like this teenagers, is so crazy. it's teenagers in underwear, and like now it's yes. like they would show that on fucking kids morning TV on Saturday. Yeah, and I was like, that's like an episode of Euphoria and not even a, that's like a light episode. (laughs) But but yeah, and so that to me was so great finally seeing One Hour Photo because I was like, oh, this is the style that I remember from this director and it was definitely in the film. Like the whole style of his prior work was in the film. Like, I loved Robin Williams playing this creepy-ass fucking dude. I I, I want to say this, and I really hope that it's not a spoiler. But I was genuinely shocked when this happened. There's a scene in the film with Michael Vartan. So, I just learned of the term dick root. What? <laughs> Do go on and explain what the fuck that means. I don't know if I want to explain it. Oh, but you have to, because I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I was, I was, when I was in Europe, I was watching a documentary where the, where somebody referred to the male, like, upper pubic region as the dick root. Like somebody, there was like a photograph of somebody of a man like wearing very low rise jeans, and like the top part of his, you could see like the beginning part, right, of his penis. And some somebody said like that's the dick root, and I was like <laughs> screaming when I heard that term. Never heard of it before Never. until like a few weeks ago. And there was a scene where I believe we saw. Oh, we get full Michael frontal. Vartans. Oh, he did. Okay, yeah. I didn't stop it because I was like, yeah, I, didn't I don't want to be a creep. Either. But but like, if you want, like, you could stop and be a creep. But it's 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 like the Ben Affleck Gone Girl dick scene where it's like it's there for a second. Yes, it's a flash. But then it's all dick root after that. <laughs> I don't know why I was shocked that that happened, 
Like, I was like, oh my God, I, I guess I wasn't prepared for this. Because uh, it was before the Dongassance. Yes, it was before. It was like 20 years before the Dongassance. <laughs> we weren't used to seeing full frontal male ever in films and in TV shows. And certainly not with like the hottie of the moment. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So I was fucking shocked. Maybe like, that's I was his, like, holy shit. Maybe that's his dark turn as he's like, I will show you Dick Root <laughs> and you will know that I'm a serious actor. I'm willing to show you Mons Pubis. <laughs> <laughs> Where is is Michael Vartan from like like is he from Germany? Like what's his story? <laughs> to me, I'm like, this was his like Fassbender moment. Like his like Michael Fassbender moment of like oh, I got the goods. Ladies, I'm just gonna sh- I'm gonna put it in a movie. I'm gonna so. and most and here's the thing: they didn't even oh, advertise Casey it. Oh, Casey says he's French. That explains <laughs> literally everything. <laughs> Thank you, Casey. <laughs> that explains everything. <laughs> we love the French. They're willing to show us a dick root at any moment. <laughs> and also, his his girlfriend Maya in the movie is Erin Daniels, who you, people might recognize from the original L Word, and she's full frontal too. Yes, yes. Like, this movie just I, I went was, there. Also, I have I has to be said, this is the second week, second movie where Nick Cersei <laughs> plays a a Southern char- side character. And listen, I don't like that man's <laughs> politics. I don't like that man. But he shows up in a role and just chews it up. Yeah, he really does. He does a lot of Southernness in that brief yeah. uh, five minutes that he's on screen. But um. I'm so happy that you picked this movie. I mean, I was like secretly praying that you would. I am so glad I finally saw it. I thought it was like actually pretty great. Yeah, and good, good. Definitely, like, definitely appreciated the dark turn. I thought, again, like, I I remember when it came out, and I remember when everybody was scandalized by it slightly. But now I'm like, yo, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of everything else. Like, this opens the door to so much. Truly. It was and, um, It was really, really... Uh, it holds up. It holds up. I will say that. The creep factor holds up. Everything holds up. Absolutely. And, like, even he had his bad, like, bleach job. I missed... Deeply missed Robin Williams again. Always. Every time I see him in one of these fucking roles, I'm like, god damn, he was good. Like, what could he be doing now? He was just so good. <sighs> well, thank you for going down this road with me. I just I, I just really wanted to do this theme and you came up with an amazing name for it and brought an amazing movie. So thank you. Thank you for going down this road with me, especially as hopped up on caffeine as I am. <laughs> this is oh, this was a wild one. I swear. I mean, this um, is one of those where I'm like, I'm going to listen back to the edit and be like, what was I saying? What? What? Huh? <laughs> Well, listen, if you want to email us, of course, we're at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Please send us um, you know, messages and emails for bonus episodes, which are now in the main feed. We read them if they're good and cool, and we love hearing from all of you. So And you can also you can find us on our socials at I saw pod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you click on Instagram uh, on a link our link tree, you can find our P.O. box. So if you want to physically send mail to pile up for Millie to get then yeah, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, and we also have merch, um, which some people were like, oh, you have merch. I'm like, yes. Yeah. We say it every time in every episode. We actually have a hoodie that is that has Carrot and Sophie, our pets, on it, yeah. which is super cute. But if you want it and other things, go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right shop. Get on it. And don't forget our bonus episodes are now on the main feed. We're rolling out some of the old episodes uh, every Wednesday, every couple of Wednesdays, so you'll have a chance to kind of go back and and either re-listen or listen to for the first time um, how unhinged we have been since we started this this podcast. <laughs> well, Danielle, do you want to tell the folks about the movies for next week? I do, because our films next week are Full Metal Jacket from 1987 and Reflections in a Golden Eye from 1967. Ooh, guess the theme, guess the theme. I think you're gonna you're gonna think you know the theme, and then we're gonna give you something truly out of this world. <laughs> God. We have a lot to live up to by next week. No pressure, no pressure. Well, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. Love it. Until next time. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien, mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod, and you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.